Last Sunday, we began to look at the work of the Holy Spirit according to Jesus in John chapter 16, verses 8 through 15. In this particular section of the Bible, in this section of John's gospel, Jesus identifies three things that the Holy Spirit will do when he comes after the ascension. And last Sunday, we focused on number one, the Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. If you weren't with us last Sunday, I would uh, encourage you to go to our website and go ahead and listen to the message. Uh, This morning, we're going to look at numbers two and three. If you would please... Take your, Bibles to, uh, take your Bibles and turn to John 16 once more, and this time we're going to focus on verses 12 through 15. John 16, verses 12 through 15. As you turn there, uh, whether it be on your phone, uh, iPad, or Bible, and if it is your phone or whatever, make sure that you... Uh, Put it on airplane mode so we don't get interrupted. But as you turn there, I'll go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll get to work. Father, we um, have already worshipped you in a number of ways through singing, through prayer, through giving. And, And now we worship you through the proclamation of your word Uh, Open our our hearts to you now, open our ears to you now, our minds to you now, and and help us through the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to not just hear the word of God, uh, but to comprehend it, understand it, to be transformed by it. And so we humble ourselves now and we place ourselves at your feet, asking that you teach us, that you instruct us. Uh, this is not my sermon to your people here. This is your message to your people here. So we pray that we would have ears to hear and hearts to receive. So uh, thank you for this time of worship through the ministry of the word. May we be focused and bring you glory as we focus and take notes. We pray this in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Well, let's continue. Number two, number two, the Holy Spirit will reveal the truth. We see that in verses 12 and 13. Jesus continues by saying, I still have many things to say to you. He's speaking to his disciples. But you cannot bear them now. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you, Uh, the things that are to come. So, the disciples, and we've covered this several times, but the disciples were sorrowful upon learning that Jesus was about to leave them to return to the Father, right? We see that in chapter 14, verse 1. We're still in the same narrative, the same night, the same discourse. They're still sorrowful over Jesus' exit. And They're also sorrowful upon learning that they would experience persecution and martyrdom in the future. And we saw that in verse 2 of chapter 16. So so these guys 
were very sorrowful right now. Their hearts were very heavy. The idea of Jesus leaving, the idea of them suffering persecution and these sorts of things. This is a a very tough emotional moment for them, this entire evening. And, And because the Lord Jesus will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick, Isaiah 42, verse 3, Jesus abstains from further describing what will transpire. He literally knows that they are sorrowful beyond any kind of measure here and that in some ways it would be an exercise in futility to keep unpacking future events and what's going to happen to them. They, they, they can't handle any more difficult, challenging teaching. Jesus basically says, to my little paraphrase, there are many more things I could say to you tonight, but I know that you cannot bear them right now. And what an example the Lord Jesus sets for us right here, for his people. Jesus not only knew what to say to folks, but he knew when to say it. This is what's so unique about him. He he knows what to say to people and what they need to hear, but he also knows that there is a time and a place for things to be said. He has this discernment, and it's perfect discernment. You might say this, Jesus understood the importance of timing. And sometimes it's difficult for us to discern certain situations and to figure out how to respond appropriately. Can I get a witness on that? Sometimes you're interacting with somebody and there's a scenario playing out and and it's, it's difficult for you to find the right words. And in most cases, we say the wrong words and we give them an entire volley of them. And in the end, the whole interaction that we had with them, this counseling session that we had with them that God ordained... We make a big mess of it. We we say the wrong things, or we we say too much. You know, there is such a thing as, as, as the ministry of presence, and that's the idea of just being there for people. Instead of giving all this wisdom and input and giving all this factual data, just simply being there and listening... And showing empathy, empathy even through your countenance, but just being present. I was struck by a scene in a movie that, that uh, I hadn't seen in a long time. We watched it the other night, the movie My Girl. You Probably many of you remember the movie. And, 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 and Veda, I think, is the young gal, and her, her best friend, Thomas, is, is stung to death. He's allergic to bees, and he gets stung to death, and he dies. And shortly after he passes away. It's a, it's a very sad scene in the movie, very, very tragic. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a sissy lala, so of course I was weeping, but acting like a total man to my wife, hiding the tears and hiding the face and the, and the sniffing and stuff. But there's this scene where, where I think his name is Harry. Her father is in a restaurant sitting down, and, and, and the, the guy, the kid that died, his mother walks by and taps on the glass, and this guy runs a funeral parlor, and he's the one that prepared little Thomas and, and performed the burial, but anyways, he comes out, and she's, the mother of the, the boy that died is, is weeping and, and describing how much she misses him and, and these sorts of things, and Harry literally says nothing. He just stands there 
and listens to her and looks into her eyes, and you can tell that he's empathizing with her through his countenance and his facial expressions. And, and it was, I was just sitting there thinking, that's how Christ is. Now, I don't know if Harry in the movie knew Christ, but and, and I thought, how many times have I been in a situation like this where, where instead of just being there for someone and, and just, just being quiet and, and maybe being a hug, maybe manifesting the physical presence of Christ as Christ is in me, that I've just jabber-jawed and given data. Sometimes when we're in these scenarios, we actually add fuel to the fire rather than extinguishing it, don't we? We just say so much and give so much facts and these things, and the person is just like, it's like cognizant dump. Well, you know what the psalm says, and you know this, and you know that, and we're just flooding them with it. Now, our attention is good, but we don't understand the principal truth that's represented in this text, that there is a right time and place to say things. And sometimes the right time and place where you say minimally, you just say a few things. And sometimes you don't say anything at all. You know, we forget that wonderful proverb that says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverb 15.1. Sometimes we just, in these scenarios, sometimes we get corrective because the person is, is upset and sad and they're saying things that don't make sense and they're saying things that aren't theologically accurate. And so what do we do? We respond with kind of a harsh correction. Well, I'm, I'm sorry that, um, that, that, that Bill passed away, but you must understand he's not an angel now. You know, there's a time and place to, to give people a correct theology on angels. And, and maybe when somebody dies and somebody's grieving and they think their husband Bill is an angel, now maybe that's not the right time to enter into a theological conversation about whether Bill's an angel or not. Maybe, maybe the Lord will give you an opportunity to say something, but you don't need to respond with, guess what, he's not an angel. In fact, if he isn't in the Lord, he's in hell. Thank you for your ministry. Now, I get it. We, we all have this desire to be, to be right in our theology and to, and, to, and to proclaim truth, but I'm just saying we need to be sensitive. We forget that wonderful proverbial statement in James 1.19 that says, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. I guarantee there's somebody in this room that went through something and, and you were interacting with somebody and, and you were sitting there wishing that that person was more quick to listen rather than speak as they divulge all the mysteries of Scripture upon you or something else. Here's the issue, man. Our trouble is that our desire to be heard is greater than our desire to be helpful. And that's a pride issue. That's a pride issue, isn't it? Our desire to be heard is greater so many times than our desire to be actually helpful. And we have answers because we've done our due diligence and we've studied in these sorts of things and we've got answers. And I'll tell you what, we're like a loaded gun, man. The first opportunity we get to unpack and we start firing away. And right after Bill dies, that's not a good idea. We have answers and we want to give them to people. And what we ought to do 
is we ought to listen more intently rather than blurt out a bunch of facts. Facts are important, no doubt. But if folks do not sense that we truly care about them, the facts we share with them probably won't matter anyways. We need the attitude and discernment of Jesus. Jesus understood with his disciples here, there was a tipping point. If he wanted to, he could continue to unpack these things for them and maybe tip them and push them right over the edge. Right into despair. We need the attitude and discernment of Jesus. We need uh, to not only know what to say at any given moment, but when to say it. We need to pray for this. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would make us more like Christ, especially when it comes to these kinds of situations. How often do we actually pray before we enter into one of these scenarios? How often are we asking the Lord to soften our hearts and make us empathetic and compassionate and to give us the right words or no words at all? So many times we enter into these scenarios just flippantly and with a head full of data instead of a heart filled with love. We look at Christ here and we see that he could say so much more, but knowing that their hearts could bear nothing else, he abstains from taking them to some other theological truth and reality, some other biblical reality. That doesn't mean that he was silent the whole rest of the night. He continued to speak. But he chose his words carefully. While being sensitive and knowing where they were at, we could learn from him here. Could we not learn from him here? Wow. Jesus ensured that his disciples would learn everything he wants them to know despite their current inability to bear more truth. He did this for them. We see it in the, in the next couple of lines here. And yet, Augustine points out that at this time, the disciples were neither fit to learn nor die for Christ. I mean, these guys are tore up over Jesus leaving and the fact that they're going to face persecution. Do you think at this very moment they'd be willing to die for him if the police come and start some kind of a conflict with him? They weren't fit to learn anything more right now at this moment, nor were they fit to actually die for Christ. And, and yet people way less significant and, and, and notable than, than these men who became the apostles very easily laid down their lives for Christ later on. But these men were not fit for any of that right now. But Jesus does ensure that they will. It's not like, hey, I'm going to cut off your teaching and learning. That's not what he's saying. He actually ensures here that they will learn everything they need to know. After Jesus is physically gone, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will come and what? Guide them into all the truth. Verse 13. And perhaps this text right here solves a mystery for us. How is it that a person can hear the gospel for years or even a lifetime, but in the end be unable to possess any sound doctrine? I think we've all been mystified by that reality. Well, what makes men fit is the coming of the Holy Spirit, not their 
intellectual prowess, not their years of exposure to the story of redemption. It's the Holy Spirit that makes men fit. Why do people that hear the gospel over and over never get it? Because they haven't been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. They haven't been regenerated. They haven't been granted that kind of spiritual access to spiritual mysteries and truth. It's not because of them, even though they're held responsible for it, because down deep in their hearts, they don't want to understand it or live it out. The Holy Spirit alone can guide men into all the truth. That is a universal truth in this text. Truth is is spiritually discerned. So unless the Holy Spirit changes us spiritually and makes us spiritually discerning, truth will not be properly understood. Truth will not be properly received. What does it say in 1 Corinthians 2.14? The natural person, that's one who's still in their sin, hasn't been regenerated, hasn't been born again. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. That means they're stupid to him, they're a joke, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. R. Kent Hughes put it like this, Apart from the Holy Spirit, human beings do not understand spiritual realities. So maybe that puts an end to the mystery of how people can listen and listen and listen and listen, and yet at the end of their life, they know absolutely nothing. They don't possess any sound doctrine. They don't possess salvation. They don't understand the gospel, but they've heard it their entire lives. Well, what is the issue here? It is the issue of they have not been made spiritually new, spiritually discerning, through the Holy Spirit. How is it that, and maybe this will help us solve another mystery, how is it that a believer, one who has been born again, can hear a particular doctrine for years, but be unwilling to bear it? Say, for instance, the doctrine of predestination and election. There's no doctrine in Scripture that sooner makes a believer's skin crawl than that one. You mean God chose people in advance and left some out of that? Yeah, that's what the Scripture teaches. How dare he? I think it's understandable why people arrive at that conclusion. They've been poorly taught. But for the most part, how is it that a believer can hear a particular doctrine for years and and yet still be unwilling to bear it? It doesn't have to be election or, or predestination. It can be some other doctrine. Why? How does that happen? It could be because they do not possess the spiritual fitness, maturity that is needed to do so. In other words, they haven't gotten to a place of spiritual maturity where they're willing to bear that truth. How can a believer become more spiritually fit? First, he or she should begin by humbly acknowledging the fact that they are not spiritually fit enough to bear certain truths. You you see, with us, when it comes to growing in our knowledge and fear of the Lord, the first step is humility, acknowledging that we need to grow, that we do not possess certain knowledge, that we do not rightly understand certain things. And so that's the starting point for really just about anything. You can become more spiritually fit by acknowledging your spiritual lethargy. 
that you're a spiritual fatso instead of lean and mean. I have no idea where that illustration came. You're spiritually unfit. You need to get to the spiritual gym. Some of you are gym people, so you're like, amen, brother. Obviously, you can tell I go to the gym all the time. I go to the smorgie. You got to firstly humble yourself and acknowledge the fact that you do not possess certain knowledge. Second, he or she should spend time in prayer asking the Holy Spirit to help them. You got to beseech the Holy Spirit and say, look, there is something here in Scripture that I, ha- I am not willing to bear, and yet everyone I know bears it. What is going on with me? Can you help me, Holy Spirit, come to terms with this doctrine, with this particular truth? And this isn't a one-time prayer. Maybe a process of prayer where you're praying the same thing over and over. Help me understand this. Third, he or she must study Scripture diligently and regularly. The best resource for understanding the Bible is the Bible, not R.C. Sproul's commentary. Scripture interprets Scripture. I'm not saying that his commentaries aren't decent or good. I'm just saying you've got to get yourself into the Word of God and stay there. And fourth... He or she must obey what they learn from the Word. That's one that's usually left off. Well, obedience isn't important. Yes, it is. Obedience proves that you are humble and willing to live out what you learn. And I think that truth possessed without being lived out is nothing more than knowledge that puffs up. We're not to be just hearers of the Word or studiers of the word, or students of the word. We're to be doers of the word. Sometimes I think it's a matter of stewardship. God is unwilling to entrust certain things to us because we prove to be unfaithful with lesser things. If you want to understand the doctrine of election better, obey him through giving. Obey him in the elementary things. It's crucial that we obey what we learn. It's crucial that we obey what we read. What we do understand, we are to put to obedience. Do you want to become more spiritually fit, more mature, able to bear challenging truths? Humility, prayer, study, and obedience will help to get you into shape. Those things will assist you. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth in verse 13. This title reflects the Holy Spirit's total truthfulness in all things, especially in Revelation. And and this is imperative that Jesus convey this reality to them because he has been their teacher. Once he leaves, the Holy Spirit will be their teacher, and he needs to be a trustworthy teacher to them because they're not as familiar with the Holy Spirit as they are Jesus. And Jesus is saying, look, the Spirit of truth is going to come and minister to you. You can trust what he says to you. And he goes on to describe, you can trust what he says to you because guess what? He's saying to you what I say to you and what I've always said to you. I love this title. 
It means that that the Holy Spirit is is perfectly honest and without deceit. this, This book came to us through the Holy Spirit. We can trust it because He is the Spirit of truth, not deceit, not lies. We have a, a trustworthy resource here because we have a trustworthy source. That's what Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit is the antithesis, the total and absolute opposite of the devil whom Jesus calls a liar and the father of lies back in John 8, 44. Look at the contrast here. Back in chapter 8, he's describing the devil who's the father of the Pharisees and the father of all lies and the father of murder and everything else. You belong to your father. He was a murderer since the beginning. He was a, a liar since the beginning. And here, we, he, he contrasts with the Holy Spirit who's the spirit of truth. What will the Holy Spirit guide the disciples into? What is meant by all the truth? Are we talking about every facet of science? No. Are we talking about secular knowledge? No, that's chaff. Are they going to come to a solid knowledge of every literal thing they need to know? Are they going to become omniscient? No. No, I think what Jesus is saying here pertains exclusively to the truth concerning himself. The Holy Spirit is going to come and he's going to teach you what you need to know about me. What you need to know and understand about my person and ministry. The Holy Spirit will clearly reveal who Jesus is, what he did, and what he will do when he returns, and how to live for him as his disciples. A little later, several of these men who were here walking with Jesus toward Gethsemane, plus a handful of other godly-inspired men, recorded what the Holy Spirit revealed. And this is precisely how the New Testament came about. The Holy Spirit's basically saying, I'm going to guide you into all the truth. What does that mean? I'm going to guide you into the New Testament, which is the testimony to Jesus Christ. And this is precisely how the New Testament came about later on. And the Old Testament is also God-breathed and inspired by the Holy Spirit, right? It just simply points to the coming Messiah. The New Testament, however, tells us all about him, and it tells us what he'll do when he comes back, what he did, what he'll do when he comes back. It tells us how to live for him, in particular, the epistles, the short letters. Something else that Jesus is is pointing out here is the fact that the Holy Spirit, when He comes, He will come to serve Christ just as Christ came to serve the Father, right? John 6, 38, I have not come to do my will, but the will of Him who sent me. Guess what? The Holy Spirit comes to do the will of Christ, not His own will. And this is how Jesus describes this. He says, he will not speak on his own authority. In other words, he has, he's not coming to do whatever he wants to do. But whatever he hears from Christ, he will speak. And he will declare to what? The disciples, or to who? The disciples, the things that are to come. 13b, verse 13b. And, 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 and really, 
the final product of this revelation that Christ is talking about that will be given to the disciples, if, if you're holding your Bible, in particular the New Testament, that's the product that Jesus is promoting here. Your New Testament, your 27 books, Matthew to Revelation, that is the revelation of the Holy Spirit. It's all about Jesus. It's all about what it means to live for Him. So that's number two. Number three, the Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus Christ. Verses 14 and 15. This is big. Jesus is continuing and He says this to them, He will glorify me, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Verse 15, all that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Holy Spirit's ministry is to glorify Jesus Christ. That's His ministry. That is His primary ministry. Does He not do a lot of other things? Yes, but guess what? At the end of the day, every one of those things that He does somehow points to the glory of Christ. His objective is to come and glorify Jesus Christ. And how does He do this? Well, what does Jesus tell us? By disclosing the truth about Jesus. He glorifies Jesus by disclosing the truth about Jesus. How does he disclose the truth about him? Well, when he regenerates dead sinners, makes them alive, as the passage that was read earlier, he also convicts them of their sin, of their unrighteousness, of their faulty judgment, and their need for salvation in Christ alone, right? That's verses 8 through 11. In that moment, the Holy Spirit discloses Christ to that person, and they embrace Him wholeheartedly. The Holy Spirit also discloses Christ to believers as they engage in the ordinary means of grace, when they participate in the sacraments, right? Baptism and communion, when they pray, when they read Scripture, when they fellowship with one another. There is a disclosing of Christ that happens during those times. And lastly, the Holy Spirit discloses Christ in judgment. It will be at the name of Jesus that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Him as Lord, right? Philippians 2, 10 through 11. The end result of each type of disclosure I've just described to you is what? glorification. In other words, Christ is glorified when the Holy Spirit discloses Him in each of these ways. The end result is glory to Christ. The Holy Spirit performed a miracle in you. You know Christ and you live your life to His glory now. Do you see how it works? We must understand as well, something that's, that's, that's in this text is the fact that the Holy Spirit does not point to Himself, but to the Son, Jesus Christ. This text clearly states what His mission and goal and objective is. It is to glorify Christ. So guess what? The Holy Spirit doesn't come to point to Himself. He comes to point to Christ. And this is a truth some Christian groups totally miss as they focus on the Holy Spirit, as they focus on His gifts and blessings, rather than on the person and work of Jesus Christ. This is one way you can tell if a church is, 
you know, who is actually leading any given church. Now, some churches just aren't churches. They're just cults. But one of the ways that you can tell who's actually leading a church is by this litmus test. If a church makes much of Jesus and sticks to the gospel, it's being led by the Holy Spirit. Harry Ironside wrote, The Spirit of God delights to make much of Christ. If you have a church that delights to make much of Christ, you can tell the Spirit is there. You can tell He's active, He's present, and He's working in and through the lives of God's people there. But if a church makes much of the Holy Spirit and sticks primarily to His gifts and blessings, that church is being led by men. Did you understand what I just said? There are people in this room that were either part of a church like that or know of a church like that. Where the entire emphasis is on the Holy Spirit and His works and what He can do for people. That is a church that's led by men, not the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't point to Himself. He points to Jesus Christ. Spirit-led churches make much of Jesus, and they preach the gospel. And they preach the biblical Jesus, right? Because today you've got candy cane Jesus, my little pony Jesus, tandem bike Jesus, you know, where you buy matching sweaters and you ride a tandem bike together. Jesus is my pal. You've got that today. You've got a lot of versions of Jesus, but but spirit-led churches actually preach the Christ of Holy Scripture, who is a Christ who commands people to repent and believe the gospel and die to themselves. He's not a Christ who just accepts us as we are and we don't have to repent and he's got all this unconditional love. His love is conditioned. You must repent of your unbelief. And that is not a Jesus that's proclaimed today in many churches. It's a soft bubblegum Jesus. Spirit-led churches preach the biblical Jesus. Spirit-led churches preach the biblical gospel. And let me tell you what the gospel isn't. The gospel isn't that you can have hope. The gospel isn't that you can have possessions and money and wealth. The gospel isn't that you can have happiness or joy. Some of those things are just the byproducts of the work of Christ. Those things are not the actual gospel. The gospel is you can have peace. The gospel is you can have a good marriage. No, that's not the gospel. Spirit-led churches preach the biblical gospel, which is the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that all who believe in him can be saved. And today, people are being sold a false bill of goods with all of these gospel benefits, but they're not actually hearing the gospel. There's a church in town who I have a dear friend who pastors at, and he's always talking about how every weekend he preaches the gospel, but I've gone and listened to his sermons. I never hear the gospel. I only hear what Jesus can do for those people that are coming there. Well, he can give you joy. He can give you peace. He can, he can give you this. He can take care of your financial needs and all of this, and by the time it's all said and done, he thinks he's preached the gospel. Guess what? You haven't preached the gospel until you've talked about the perfect life of Jesus, the sacrificial, bloody, murderous death of Jesus for our sins, the burial that settles our account with God, the resurrection that we celebrate every time this year. That's the gospel. 
Spirit-led churches preach the biblical Jesus and they preach the biblical gospel. It's not fun or popular to be a part of a church that's like that. Well, I'd rather be a hold of the one that just dispenses all the blessings of Christ and talks about how great I am. And I don't want to hear about a bloody death for my sin. I'm a pretty good person. I'm Presbyterian. I'm a Protestant. I don't need to ask God for forgiveness, Trump. You need forgiveness, brother. And sadly, just spirit-led churches are just totally not common today, and yet man-led churches are everywhere. They're a dime a dozen. It breaks my heart. Now I want you to notice something in verse 15. I want you to notice how it's Trinitarian. We see the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in it. All three members of the Godhead are right there in that verse. And I said this before, I'll say it again, it's kind of rare to see the entire Godhead in a verse or set of verses, and this is one of a handful of places where we see that in Scripture. Oh, they're mentioned individually all the time in Scripture, but rarely do you see all three in the same verse. In verse 15, they're here. Jesus says, all that the Father has is mine. Who's mine? He's talking about himself. He's the Son. Therefore, I, that's another reference to himself, the Son, said that he, that's a reference to the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine, that's the Son again, and declare it to you. To who? The disciples. All three members right there. You got the Father, you got the Son, you got the Holy Spirit. And according to J.C. Ryle, Jesus was declaring the entire unity that exists between each member of the Trinity in regards to really all things, but specifically here to the revelation of truth made to man. Ryle put it like this, there is so close a union between the Father and the Son that the Spirit cannot show or teach the things of the one without the things of the other. He proceeds from the Father as well as from the Son. That's a great interpretation of verse 15. And I think what Jesus was doing here is simply declaring His divine Lordship in a way. All that belongs to the Father belongs to the Son. What does Jesus say? All that is mine belongs to the Father and vice versa. What does John 3.35 say? The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. In other words, everything that the Father possesses, which is the cattle on a thousand hills, and everything else has been given to the Son. The Son owns everything that the Father owns. And those who belong to the Son get to share in His inheritance. His kingdom is our kingdom if you're in Christ. His treasures are our treasures if you're in Christ. This is a wonderful encouragement to these men right here. The Spirit's going to come and give you what's mine, and guess what? He's giving you what's the Father's as well, because guess what? Both belong to us. Romans 8.32 says, For he who spared not his own son, referencing the Father, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, with Christ, grant us all things? You see, what you got here in verse 15 is a promise. 
All that the Father has is Christ's. And all that Christ has is the Father's and ours if we are in him by grace through faith. What a promise. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Christians are the wealthiest person persons on earth. We are the wealthiest people on earth. We may not be, many of us, if not all of us, the wealthiest people in temporal terms, in physical things, but we are, we are spiritually wealthy. And we are physically wealthy. We just don't have some of that yet. We have a divine inheritance in Christ. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It is kept for us in heaven. That's what 1 Peter 1.4 says. We have spiritual blessings in Christ. Ephesians 1.3-14, which is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. It's one blessing that we have in Christ after another. And these blessings make us infinitely wealthy. And we have, and we have, and we have, and this is rarely emphasized... And we have this. We have the Word of God, the Bible, which is the complete, inerrant, infallible revelation of the triune God. Do you realize what a treasure you possess if you possess a Bible? That you hold within your hand the very Word of the living God? And that by grace, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, you've been made to understand it? This Bible is a treasure. It is a miracle. It is a miraculous treasure. We are not living in a period of gradual revelation, as some suggest. That's the big thing today, is this ongoing revelation from God. God is speaking to me, and and this is what he says, and I'm prophesying over you, and blah, blah, blah. We're not living in a period of that. Spurgeon once said, God has spoken his word, and he will not open his mouth a second time. That's the word of God. It's complete. It's perfect. The Bible is a treasure. It is God's special revelation to humankind. It alone is able to make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. It alone is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It alone can wash, cleanse, and sanctify us. Ephesians 5.26 When is the last time you opened your treasure You opened your Bible. You opened God's special revelation. When is the last time you did that? When is the last time you opened it up and got into it and partook of its divine delicacies? Spurgeon called reading the Bible our spiritual meal time. 
When is the last time you came to the table and dined on the Word of God? Well, it was last Sunday. Shame on you. Because it should have been this morning before church or last night before you went to bed. Do we not understand Jesus' words in Matthew 4, 4 that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the very mouth of God? If you desire to become more spiritually fit, more mature, you got to get into the word of God. you got to open up that treasure book. Lack of Bible reading and study is one of the reasons why many Christians are spiritually unhealthy and total wimps today. It is why believers today are tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Ephesians 4.14 Don't be tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Be studious and grounded in Scripture so you can what? Destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Be studious and grounded in Scripture so you can make what? A defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you and to do it with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3.15 Look, this passage is about leading the disciples into all the truth, revealing to them all that Christ wants them to know. The New Testament, a treasure a priceless treasure. Without the word of God, we do not know God. We do not know salvation. We know nothing. We can know that God exists because nature testifies to his invisible attributes and his power, but that's as far as it goes. You can stare at half dome till the cows come home. It doesn't say you need to repent and believe in Jesus. It just says there is a maker. Man, we ought to be students of the Word. Students of the Word. Well-equipped for the ministry of the gospel. Well-equipped. Well-equipped. Jesus is telling him he's going to come and lead you into all truth. The Spirit's goal for us is to lead us into all truth through all the Bible that what? Christ would be glorified. closing. I have some final thoughts for you. As you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about this topic. I am. Every week you hear from a man who has been transformed by that treasure right there. I know it's power. I know it's power. I've tested it. 
Final thoughts for you. It is the Holy Spirit's purpose to glorify Jesus Christ, right? That's what it says. When He comes, He'll glorify me. Isn't this our purpose as well? 1 Corinthians 10, 31b says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right before that, it says whether you eat or drink. You just get the idea that, it, that it's all-encompassing. It, it involves every facet of our existence. Eating, drinking, conversing. We do all things for the glory of God. All things, not some things. All things. As Christians, we share the Holy Spirit's purpose to glorify Christ. How do we do this? Well, how does the Holy Spirit do it? He glorifies Christ in Revelation. Well, guess what? Revelation is complete, so this is off the table for us. God is not going to reveal new truth to you that goes beyond the Scripture. He might reveal to you an understanding of what already exists, but that's the extent of it. You might reveal truth to people as you proclaim the Word of God. But this is a closed revelation. It's complete. It's perfect. So that's not a way, that's not something that we share with the Holy Spirit. How then can we glorify Christ? MacArthur wrote, It is the Spirit's purpose to glorify Jesus Christ in Revelation. How can it be any less our purpose to glorify Christ in proclamation? See, there's a difference between revelation and proclamation. Revelation is that treasure right there. Proclamation is taking that treasure and proclaiming it, teaching it, gossiping it, reading it aloud. We glorify Jesus Christ through proclamation, simply telling people about Jesus, gossiping and preaching the gospel. And yet, what good will our proclamation be if our lifestyles don't align with the one we proclaim? Let let me reread that. What good will our proclamation be if our lifestyles don't align with the one we proclaim? In other words, if we are not living like Jesus, how can we possibly effectively proclaim Him? Proclamation of Christ must be accompanied by Christ-like living if it is going to be effective. Proclamation, and this might be something you want to quote, proclamation devoid of Christ-like living is hypocrisy. Unholiness literally destroys the church's ability to effectively proclaim Christ. It destroys our witness. I'm not lying to you. I've heard stories. In fact, I think Cameron and I know a guy that used to do this, but I've heard stories about believers going into bars, you know, places where you drink, and sitting down and, and, and getting highly intoxicated and trying to witness to other intoxicated people at the same time. 
Man, if I was sitting next to this guy and I didn't know Jesus or him and he's hammered and telling me about Jesus, I said, I, I'd say, I think you need to know Jesus, bro. Or, or maybe I'll, I'll, I'll share the gospel as I smoke a joint with that guy. Huh? I remember one guy I know, he, he, was, he was dating a gal and and, he was, and she wasn't a believer, and he, he, he told me, man, I, but I'm witnessing to her, I'm witnessing to her. I'm like, so you're dating to convert? You know, that's a no-no. And I said, let me just ask you this, man. Are, are, you, are, you, are you sleeping with her? Are you sexually active with her? Yes, I am. So you're preaching the gospel to her while committing fornication with her. Well, but we're going to get married. Are you married? I'm a good priest to her. And I said, um, uh, hold on a second. Pagan priests sleep with their subjects, moron. Are you kidding me? Unholiness destroys the church's ability to effectively proclaim Christ. Unhol uh, holiness, literally, holiness is linked to our evangelism. We have to be living out the message we're proclaiming. I mean, that's just dumb to think that you can go into a bar and get drunk and witness to people or that you can sleep with your girlfriend and witness to her. What, do you whisper Christ in her name, in her ear? I love you, baby, and so does Jesus. That's stupid! Our message becomes even less, even less believable when our lifestyle contradicts Christ. Does it not? You know, if you've ever witnessed to somebody and they saw you display behavior that didn't line up and they called you a hypocrite, that's a wake-up call. Look, man, we are to imitate God, not the world, Ephesians 5.1. We are to walk in a manner worthy of our high calling, Colossians 1.10. We are to walk in love as Christ loves us, Ephesians 5.2. We are to walk in light as Christ is in the light, 1 John 1.7. We are to walk in purity, not in unholiness, 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. We are to expose the fruitless deeds of darkness, not participate in them, Ephesians 5, 11. We are to look carefully at how we walk, not as unwise, but as wise, and make the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil, Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. Man, that's a tall order if you think about it. But through the Holy Spirit's presence and power, these things can be achieved perfectly. No. We will fail at times. And we make our apologies to those who witness our foolishness and we confess those things before God. But these things can be achieved fairly consistently if we work at it in the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. And when our lifestyle emulates that of Christ, our proclamation of Christ is sound doesn't ensure that people will actually believe the proclamation, 
That's a work of the Spirit. But your job is to live like Christ and proclaim Christ and entrust the results to the Holy Spirit.